Scripture for today, Mark 16, verses 1 through 8, reads this way. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they, were, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone, because they were afraid. Thank you, Jeff. Carbon, the element, is able to produce multiple allotropes due to its valency. That's why we say it's polymorphic. And that's why Jesus resurrected. Amen? Amen. <laughs> that sciencey stuff was actually directly from Wikipedia. Uh, I haven't taken a science class since like high school. So please feel free to discount or uh, correct me if I'm getting any of this stuff off. But uh, from what I can understand, that means that carbon can actually exist naturally in different forms with different properties, even though it's physically the same stuff at the molecular level. So two examples. The first is graphite, incredibly common. It's brittle, opaque, breaks apart easily, which is why we use it to write with pen in pencils. You can drag it, drag it evenly, lightly across a surface, and it'll break its markings behind so that we can uh, easily erase it, write down whatever we want. Stark contrast is diamond, right? Incredibly rare. It's harder than any substance in the world. It's translucent and brilliant when it catches light. Two different forms, same substance. One we pay pennies for, the others will pay thousands. Now, how is it that that same molecular makeup can produce such wildly different forms? Well, the only difference is in the arrangement of the molecules. Graphite is made up of loosely connected uh, sheets of molecules, while diamond is formed from a complex interconnected arrangement of those molecules. And what makes the difference there is pressure. Pressure applied it takes over 150,000 times the Earth's normal atmospheric pressure bearing down on carbon molecules to produce the change needed to uh, change it from graphite to diamond. That's why we say carbon is polymorphic, formed into different forms, same substance. It's the same with us and the gospel. We are polymorphic of the same substance, but somehow formed into something entirely different. Because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, all things are made new, and not just new, but brilliantly new. But finding this new life in the resurrection, it also means that we have to confront the grave, the dust, the pressure of this broken world. 
We're reflecting this morning on Mark chapter 16. We finally made it to our last week in this study in the Gospel of Mark, going chapter by chapter, looking at these scenes in Mark's Gospel, snapshots of Jesus' life and ministry, and now we're at the closing moments. And uh, as we reflect on this this morning, I want to start with the somewhat surprising ending to this passage that we have here. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is the end of the Gospel of Mark as we have it. You may notice in your Bibles, if you have a physical version in front of you, there's actually more that's included. There's uh, verse 9 through 20. There's also a shorter ending of Mark in some. Uh, some of them have it marked in the translations here that this is a, a, an additional added. In the earliest manuscripts that we have, it just starts at verse 8. So we have the question, of, well, well what, do we, what do we do with this? Um, likely in italics and some people here... Uh, Bibles, uh, further information about how the women eventually went and told the other disciples. Jesus later appeared to them, commissioned them to preach the gospel to all nations. Um, it seems that this, those, those late other longer endings, uh, endings were later added, uh, basically summarizing the post-resurrection scenes that we see in the other gospels, as well as in the book of Acts. So, questions that we have for this. Why are there multiple endings to Mark? What does it mean for us? Pretty simple answer, actually. Verse 8 is just not a satisfying conclusion to the story, right? When we read that, they were afraid, and they didn't, they didn't say anything to anyone. We're like, well, there's got to be more, right? To explain why, I want to do a quick refresher in uh, your studies in literature as well. We've done science this morning. Why not also talk about literature most of us uh, remember maybe the plot, basic plot diagram that we see in narratives. There's exposition, there's an introduction, establishing characters, uh, the inciting incident for the plot, right? Uh, there's rising action as conflict arises, stakes are set, something or some things stand in the way of the protagonist getting what they need or what they want. At some point, you reach the climax. You get to uh, this decisive turning point. The protagonist either wins or loses. There's at least some resolution to the conflict there made possible. And then the action falls. Uh, you start seeing loose ends tied up in the aftermath. There's finally a resolution. A new normal is established. Generally with the protagonist seeing some change in themselves process. Mark's gospel frustrates that in some uh, pretty significant, significant ways. It began with Jesus bursting onto the scene, uh, with John the Baptist paving the way for him, baptizing folks for repentance to prepare for the coming of the Lord. So there's some exposition here, a little bit, but it's really somewhat jarring. You remember at the very beginning of Mark, it just start, jumps right into the action. And then it keeps going immediately, and, and immediately, this happens, that happens. Jesus then begins healing many people, casting out demons, calling and equipping unlikely disciples to minister with him, uh, proclaim that God's kingdom has come near. The narrative just goes into that rising action, escalating, as this demonstrates his authority, his, his divinity, by clearly calming storms, miraculously multiplying food to feed thousands, walking on water. Meanwhile, the conflict rises as religious authorities, they grow concerned, they're jealous, they begin to hatch plots, try to trip Jesus up and discredit him. And from within his inner circle, his own disciples continually struggle with his identity and his teachings. 
now as we approach the climax of the gospel, we see everything is falling apart. He's betrayed by one of his followers, abandoned by the rest, including Peter, who vowed to stick with him even when things got really bad. He's crucified. Uh, he's turned over by the chief priests and crucified by the Romans, willingly submits to death on a cross. Then, just as all seems lost, the grave is found empty three days later. This is the climax. And this is why Mark's ending is so jarring, right? Because rather than tying up any loose ends at all after the fact, Mark just stops. And they were afraid. Stunned silence. Mark's gospel ends just as abruptly as it began. Obviously, the women said something eventually, right? they hadn't, we wouldn't have the church. The other gospels tell us uh, that they did go and share the news. But in Mark's gospel, it's just over. Why did Mark end his gospel on such a down note? You could argue that maybe Mark was just awful at storytelling. He wasn't very good at it. Or maybe he never really got to finish his work like he would have wanted because of the persecution happening all around him. I've heard that theory um, given before that he really he just finished what he could. But um, if he was that bad at storytelling, you know, we might say, why would the early church have considered his gospel valuable enough to include then? If persecution had prevented him from finishing, surely someone would have mentioned that at some point and said something, but we don't have that kind of record. Instead, we're just left with the option that Mark ended the gospel exactly as he intended to. If he intended to end it this way, what might we learn? I would suggest that there's at least one big takeaway that we can't. That their story is our story. Their mission is our mission. If we were to make clear what Mark is leaving open here, we could see that we are also meant to share in this story. How awful of an ending would it have been if they never got over their fear, never shared with the way he ends it almost gives us this feeling of compulsion. Someone's got to share this news. Someone has got to tell somebody. And so we are invited into the mission to go share this resurrection news to the rest of the world. Just like the women encountering the empty tomb, given the good news of the resurrection, we are likewise given the good news of Jesus' resurrection and salvation in the midst of our own broken and hairy lives. We have a choice, just like they did. Will we go and tell the good news, or will we remain in stunned silence? The Lord is active. Hey, he meets us in the midst of our broken lives all the time to bring life and light. Unfortunately, we still sometimes keep that news to ourselves, don't we? I wish I could say the fear is as justified as the women at the tomb. They thought they were going to see Jesus uh, in the grave. They were prepared to encounter his corpse and to lay it to rest. Instead, find this empty tomb, these angelic uh, people giving them this announcement. I mean, that, I think we can forgive them a little bit of stunned silence at this moment. But our fear is usually a lot more mundane. I had a friend of mine who would share how he almost constantly feels this tugging that he should uh, just share with someone, just simply, like maybe he's at the grocery store and feels like this. You should ask that person if they need prayer. 
just offer a prayer. We can do a conversation in some way. And he's like, I just tell Jesus no. Just don't do it. <laughs> and there. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we often have those kind of tugs as well. Um, there's these natural moments that come up. Not for us to even do some sort of artificial thing going to our neighbors' houses door to door saying, Have you heard about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? But but there's there's many, many opportunities that come up in our normal everyday life with other people. We could hope. We could share, we could pray with someone. We could share the good news of how God has ministered to us in our life, how has brought us salvation, how we have experienced resurrection life. And we still just say no. Just don't do it. I don't have any fluffier way of saying this, but sharing the good news of Jesus with the world, it isn't just a spiritual gift for some at the church or a task for those with more, more extroverted personalities. It's a command for all of Jesus' disciples. So we would go and share the good news. It'll look different for all of us, but we are all called to do it. Will we spread the news of the resurrection? Or will we let others live and die without that knowledge? Hoping that someone else will do it. Don't let fear silence the gospel. Because if you do, you'll miss out on the fruits of the gospel and sharing it with other people. The crazy truth in all of that is that in reality, when we do step out in faith to share God's goodness with other people, more often than not, we experience joy. When we get to see the power of God released by sharing the gospel with other people, it's a joyous thing. It is so fun to talk about Jesus with other people. It is so fun to see people make connections in their life. You're saying that there's a God who loves me. You're saying that there's a God who really can bring life and goodness in the midst of all of this. And then when we pray for people and actually see God answer prayers and they get overjoyed by it, there is such joy to be found in that praying others, for speaking the life-giving truth in grocery stores and in waiting rooms, city streets, even on social media, even just making a post talking about how much you love Jesus. There's good that can come from that. How awful would it be the gospel story if Jesus had risen from the grave, been glorified, conquered all the powers of sin and death, and we all just kept acting like it never happened. You've experienced the joy and the salvation of the Lord. Share it. You may just find that other people discover life and salvation because of it. Now, in the face of that challenge, though, there's also an equally difficult but more encouraging truth in this passage that lies in the journey to the tomb itself. The women, they were in stunned silence here at the beginning. We know they eventually shared with other people, but at least they went. At least they went to the tomb. While the women may seem unfaithful in their fear at the end here, they have at least done better than all of Jesus' other followers and disciples. While all the rest isolated themselves in despair, these women went to the grave to honor Jesus the best way they knew how. They were so determined in their grief to do something for Jesus, they hadn't even made adequate plans for how to roll the stone away. It said they were talking on the way there. How, who's going to roll the stone away? How are we going to make this happen? They were just hoping they'd figure it out when they got there. But they got there. They didn't let their despair keep them from confronting the grave, visiting. Confronting the grave is difficult no matter what you might do. Because the sealed tombs, 
tomb. It means continued mourning. It means the reality of death. An empty tomb is also difficult because it defies our expectations. It either means that something has gone terribly wrong or terribly right. Something has happened. For these women, and for all who followed Jesus, it means a renewed call to faithfulness, an unknown but hopeful future. There's a German theologian named Jürgen Moltmann, um, who I've been fascinated with. He was, he was drafted into the German army during World War II, you know, the Nazi side, the bad guy side. Um, it's easy for us to think that we might have done something differently in his place, uh, but some of these young men, if they were drafted, they didn't have any control of that, over that, uh, and some of them didn't know any better about anything until it was much too late. Altman actually surrendered himself in 1945 to the first British soldier that he met. And he spent the remainder of his time in a POW, POW camp. And it was in that camp that Moltmann found Jesus. He had been plagued with remorse for all that his country had done, all that he had done in complicity. As he searched his heart in grief, an American chaplain gifted him a copy of the New Testament and the Psalms. He said he'd grown up going to church, but in that POW camp, he discovered a very real connection to the Christ who suffered for him, for all. The gospel, uh, the gospel hope was made present for Moltmann through that suffering, not in spite of it. He would later claim, I didn't find Jesus, Jesus found me. And, uh, you know, like carbon molecules pressed together by earth and dirt, Christ had met Moltmann in the midst of suffering, produced something beautiful and new. He discovered a brilliant hope stronger than the power of death. After the war, Moltmann talks about how difficult it was for German people then to acknowledge the atrocities committed by their own country. Some people simply acted like it didn't happen. That still goes on today, right? People who are Holocaust deniers. There was an, this attitude of defeat and shame and despair that seemed to cripple the German people. Reflecting on this, Moltmann writes about the hope of resurrection and the need to confront the grave. The problem with this, he says, is that sometimes revisiting the grave means finding the corpse is indeed there rotting. Some deaths need to be acknowledged so that God can put to rest the bad, breathe new resurrection life world. So for the German people, they needed to confront the grave so that they could lay to rest their collective sin of their country and to look to the future of resurrection life, Christ, and humility and hope. When confronting the grave, we find one of two things, either a corpse that needs to be laid to rest or an empty tomb to be celebrated. Either way, things will never be as they were before. Don't confront the grave, you'll never know whether or not it's empty, or you'll never know if there's something that needs to be changed, um, changed in, in ourselves. Mary Magdalene, the, Mary the mother of James, uh, Salome, they were the first to hear the good news of the resurrection because they were the first to muster up the faith and courage to confront the grave. Now they were ready to lay the corpse to rest, as if Jesus was just a failed Messiah. But because of their readiness to go, they were the first to discover. My question for us, 
what graves we need to visit. Where we experience despair, loss, brokenness, and grief, or where have we been wounded, lied to, cheated on, let down? Where have we caused it out of our own selfishness? Sin? Where have we abandoned others? Where have we abused or rejected or scorned? Now, these are important enough questions to reflect on as individuals in our life. But I want to press any a little bit further even as well. Because as inexperienced as we can be at personal lament and confession and wrestling through these things in our own lives, we're way worse at doing it corporately. We almost never get to it individually, and then we rarely even consider the possibility of what it looks like corporately. I wonder just for a moment if, like Moltman, we might even be bold enough to identify the graves we need to visit as a whole. To see what shared trauma or sin they need to confront. Whether it's family system, uh, institutions, and as a country, as a society. What wounds and brokenness have we tried to forget without ever, ever really healing from it? hoping that it'll just get better with time. How many institutions are crumbling because of lost trust when scandals have gone, gone by unaddressed? Or even our country as a whole, have we truly and fully come to grips with the sin and trauma of uh, slavery and racism? Or are we willing to really sit with and confront the causes of gun violence in our society? These are big questions. We so often avoid these things because, one, the thought of what we might find is horrifying, right? But also, two, we long to remember what was good and not fixate on the bad. I'd argue, though, the truth is that we cannot fully appreciate the good and honor its value without confronting the grave, particularly in regard to uh, times in which maybe accusations are made about the church unhealthy things. Um, I've told people before, I think that Christians ought to be the least anxious people in the world to get called out. Because don't we long to look more like Jesus? Don't we believe that we have grace and mercy when we confess and repent? Don't we believe that the Spirit enables us to turn away from sin, however ingrained the habits may be, and to live differently? If so, then we should say, bring it on. If there's an accusation that proves false, thanks be to God. We can sort out the truth and pursue healing uh, for our entire society. And, but if the accusation proves true, thanks be to God. We can repent and look more like Jesus. We have resurrection hope as God's. We have resurrection hope in light of Christ. That no matter what graves we are confronting, we know that there is a hope that goes beyond it. But there's nothing to be gained from being defensive, reclusive. It just means that we will never go beyond. Great. Right? The Lord longs for us to witness resurrection life. If only we will have the boldness to visit the grave. No, God will go there with us. As we conclude this morning, I pray that this might stick with us. Might rattle around uh, in all of our souls as much as it's been rattling around in mine this week. 
I hope that in humility and faith we can approach Jesus and vulnerability and in worship, inviting the Holy Spirit to lead us gently to those places that we have avoided out of fear, shame, despair, or regret. And maybe we need to go there with a friend. Maybe we need to go there with a counselor. Maybe it's not something we can do on our own. But we can do it with the help of the Holy Spirit. And in the pressure of the dirt, may the Lord reshape us and reform us into something more beautiful. May we continue to invite him with great hope to meet us in the darkness that we might see his brilliant Our Lord, our world can be scary. Our own lives can be scary. But you are good. And you have constantly met with your people, even in the valley of the shadow of death. We know that there we can say that we fear no evil, for you are with us. The rod and your staff that comfort us. May we be guided by you, Lord. May we experience your goodness in a way that gives us hope, a way that gives us courage, that we might listen to the gentle calling and urging of the Holy Spirit. That when you start poking around in places that make us feel defensive that we might be able to gently release trust to you. Know that we're safe in your hand. Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen.